our passage for this morning is going to be these few verses out of Psalm 103, but I think for context, I want to read the whole thing. This whole passage is woven together so well. If you are able to, would you please stand as we read from God's Word? It's a psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made, his, made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do, do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. We're going to ask for your blessing on your word and for your help as I preach this morning, that you would open it up, Lord, that we see wondrous things here, that you would feed your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to reveal a little bit of my thought process behind this sermon or how, how I came to this. Um, hopefully not how the sausage is made, something better than that. But, but this, is a, this is something that's come together. It's a confluence of a couple different things. Uh, we started, I, for those of you who don't know, I work at a discipleship school over in eastern Washington in, just outside of Yakima called Great Commandments Ministries. We're in session again. We're about four weeks in now. Um, in our session, we have a group of 14 students, and uh, it, it, it's a wonderful process. So getting them, they're post high school age. This group in particular is pretty young. We have 17 up to 24 right now, and one of the big challenges is convincing the 24 year old that she's not that much older than the rest. But um, we're getting there, baby steps, but we're getting there. Um, but it's, but it's fascinating to kind of see, you know, as they come in, where they are, how they understand their faith. These are all kids from a Christian background, and, and where are the particular challenges for them? And, and one of the things that, that surfaces quite a bit with young people is just that, that 
I think two things. Simultaneously being overwhelmed on the one hand with the world as they find it. What am I going to do? How do I live as a Christian? Am I following, am I following the will of God or not? I'm, am I in the right place or not? What's the next step for me? And, and they're just, they're just uh, in some cases, consumed by the sense of anxiety and, and often paralyzed. I, I know that's not our problem today. I mean, we're older and more mature and we're settled in those things. But, but they're, they don't know yet. They don't know yet what to know. And they're getting their first taste of adult life and making their own decisions. And they're terrified. And so one of the, one of the things for me that just seems so important at the beginning is to find, find ways to kind of help them, root them in the faith meaningfully. And it's, it's challenging because we have the vocabulary for the kinds of things that we can be rooted in but we don't have the practice very well down of, of those realities. We talk a lot about faith, but the exercise of faith is kind of left to our imaginations often. And, and the default is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the default tends to be then, it's how I feel about something. Right? And, and there's, there's something deeper here in this passage. This passage uh, gives us something and, and builds on, if you read the, the title... It builds on something out of Second Peter that I want to read to you. Second Peter 1, which says, verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. There's a promise of promises there. You've been given, we've been given as Christians, everything we need for life and godliness. And yet, how do we feel? What do we do? I don't know the next step. Where is God? You haven't had a pastor for 10 months now. What do you do? Where do we turn? What's the solution? And, and like the characters in the Bible... It's hard to wait on the assurances of God, and it's tempting to take things into our own hands and shortcut things. Because we're not sure, at the moments that we need Him most, we're not sure that God has His hand on the wheel at all. He's not moving anything at all, so we need to take it in our own hands. But there's a crisis of trust, there's a crisis of belief there. But what Peter is saying, like, you've got everything right there. Unfortunately, I think Peter knew what he was saying when he said this, we don't have a book of promises in the Bible where it's just all listed out from one to however many. They are salted and woven throughout, and it's for us to look for them and find them and then do something with them. And that's, that's what I think is we find in this passage. We've got a little, a little rich vein of those kinds of promises in this passage that we're going to look at today. So that's, that's one thought that's leading into this, and that's one thing that we, I, I went through this passage with them just to kind of help them see, like, this is what God says, and now, now you need to grab hold of this and hold on to these things about what God says about himself and how he views you and, and, and so forth. That's the one thought. The other thought is, is coming out, and I think you, I mentioned this before, um, I'm fascinated by the British monarchy. I just find that as a history major, but also just as someone who has been in different cultures, and just I, there's something just fascinating about it. Queen Elizabeth passed away, of course, a couple weeks ago. I don't know if you've caught any of 
the workings going on. There's this, I just learned the other day that there's this person called the Black Rod that is, that is sent from the crown to the House of Commons to summon the House of Commons. So they are the delegate of the king and that, or the monarch, and they, this rod is a significant symbol of authority. And as he approaches the chamber of the House of Commons, they slam the door in his face. And he raps on the door and says, this is Black Rod, open up. And then they let him in to proclaim the summons from the monarch to come, to come into the chamber. Fascinating stuff. Like there's, and I mean, for us as Americans, I think we just, there's that tendency to kind of roll our eyes. And just, it's just, there's people who like cosplay and dressing up for stuff, and it's, it's a wonderful thing for them. But all that is just fraught with meaning. All that just has great significance. But, but above all that going on, it's been fascinating to watch what the Queen's death has meant to not just the British people, but to the world. 70 years on the throne. And, and whatever, whatever you make of her actual power, and I think, I think we sometimes underestimate how much she actually has in terms of, of power and authority, she was a fixture in, in, the, in the life of Britain, in the, li- in the eyes of the life of the Commonwealth, for seven decades. People were born and died during that time. She served in World War II in uniform. And it's, you see that, that feeling that maybe some of you have experienced where suddenly everything changes. She's gone. And there's this displacement going on, and it's, there's this, what's next? And they, of course, they've got a succession plan in place, but it's that, that tension in the middle that is, that's fascinating to me because it, it, I think it speaks well to all of us. We, we have, I think it's undeniable that we have this, this, this innate craving for permanence in, in, in the world that we live in. We want things to stay as they are, allowing for growth and, and some, some matter of change, but, but things like death are nervous because that changes too much. Everything's different. Um, I was visiting Bellingham this weekend and uh, pastor there for 14 years and, and left, and, and there's, some, there's some pains still from that time, and it's, it's a different Bellingham than the one I remember. I, I, it's like going back to high school after you've graduated. For, and it's like, I thought I knew this place, and it's different. And you don't necessarily like it because you, you feel like you've lost something. Um, I, I don't know if any of you have experienced the loss of a close family member, a parent, but it's the same kind of feeling, right? I don't want to be the oldest person in my family. That's dad's job. That's mom's job. That's grandma's job. That's grandpa's job. That's not mine. I'm happy with my place. It's like the third generation continuing on living. But, but those things change. And we, we took the students on a hike. And I was even thinking about this passage. Took students on a hike in Goat Lakes Wilderness. And there's, you come up through the forest. You get into this clearing. And then all, you round this bend. All of a sudden you see Rainier, St. Helens, Mount Adams all right there. And you feel. You feel them. Does that make sense? They're so present and I was thinking about this as I was thinking about, as I was looking at these things, like, but, but I'm looking at Mount St. Helens, 
which 40 years ago was a different mountain. And that's ruined. That's taken from us. I want it to be the same. I want these things to all remain the same. Like we want that, that permanence, but as we're faced with again and again, the world is impermanent. Queens die. Parents die. Kids leave home. Your health changes. And, and even though we know this, and think about the effect of 9-11, those of you who were around then, and how that changed us forever. Even though we know that, we're shocked every time. Every single time, it's just, it's not the world I want. And the longer we live, and maybe, maybe I'm speaking for myself here, but it, it seems like for a lot of us, the longer we live, the harder it is to believe that anything lasts. I think that plays into how we view what Scripture brings to us. Because God promises in his word permanence, doesn't he? Listen to these passages. Psalm 102, just before. Of you, of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Luke 21, 33 We say this every Sunday at our church after the reading of the word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah 51, 6, lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it will die in like manner, but my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will never be dismayed. So what do we do with that tension? We have to resolve that. We have to somehow embrace the fact that we live in an impermanent world. We're impermanent beings. Everything in our wiring, and maybe this is what the, the writer of Ecclesiastes meant when, when he says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. It's not just we think about eternal things, but that we crave them. We want that stability. We want that security. We want that constancy, that predictability. Those comfort us. Those help us feel safe. Those help us know who we are. But that's not here. And the danger is, and it's, it's a danger that we all fall into because this is the way that we, we naturally think about things as we work from our own experience of life to how we view God. And in a life that's impermanent, it's hard to accept that God is permanent or that his promises have any lasting value to them. Because we've never known that in this life. All right? So we have to resolve it. God, so God promises this permanence, and it's this permanence that gives power to the promises of God. So because I like you so much, I'm going to give you three promises plus one, a bonus one, which if I... I'm terrible at titling sermons. 
but if I had thought about it and looked at the passage a little bit more, I would have realized there was four already. But we'll just say it's a bonus, so it's a treat. I want to look at these, I want to take some time and just kind of think about, reflect on these four promises that are embedded in this passage from verses, from verses 8 on to, to 12 or 13 here, and, and see them in that light. Uh, these, are, these are vital for us as Christians to not just hear, but to believe. And so, so let's, let's join this. I want to say a couple things before we do so. Um, these, first of all, that these promises have to do with how God deals with his people, the people of his covenant. That's us. So this is a particular, particular group that God has in mind. And I just want to make a note, too, about the, the structure. And this is more of a, you know, by the way. But, but just a note, that the first and fourth promises seem to have more to do with the character of God towards his people, whereas the second and third with the magnitude or the extent to which he is committed to his covenant. So you'll see, I think you'll see some of that as we read through this. But let me read this passage again, this section again, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. So, verses 8 to 10, first promise, the promise of God's mercy. Listen to this again, how, how the psalmist describes him. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He won't always chide. He won't complain about us. He won't nag us. He won't scold us. He's not wagging the finger at us in disappointment. He doesn't keep his anger forever. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. And, but think about the context for saying this. He means this at that point exactly where his people demonstrate their sinfulness, not their perfection. Where we need it most, the assurance of God's character is aimed. This is where we need to hear it most, right? Because I'm assuming that we all have some semblance of a conscience that when we sin, we not only grieve our sin, but we already think about how God sees us. And what do we see? We see God that's quick to anger, not slow to anger, right? Don't we? When you sin, and then the car gets a flat, who did that? The nail or God? Because I was dumb and I did something I shouldn't have done and God's getting me. Or now I have, you know, acid reflux because, of, you know, or the cat ran away or whatever. Something bad happened because God is quick to anger when we sin. He's ready to get us. He's abounding in steadfast love. But what do we think? What's our tendency? Isn't it to think that he... His love is in measured amounts. He has a limit. I mean, Peter thinks that way when, when he goes to Jesus asking how, much he, how often he should forgive his, or how many times he should forgive his brother. There's an upper limit, right? That's how God's world works, right? God forgives up to a point and then he's done, like me, right? 
I, w- I want to feel the responsibility of this. I want, I want him to be like I expect him to be so then I can pay him back. And he abounds. He abounds in steadfast love. abounds in a love that is not wavering. It's an intensity in its commitment. It's steady on. He won't always chide or complain or scold or nag. It's not to say that God doesn't convict us, that there aren't consequences for what we do, but there's a limit to that. Not his love, but to his chastising us. There's a limit to that. He doesn't keep his anger forever. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. That's a different God than we natively think of, isn't it? That's, That's a different God than we instinctively think of. It's strange, isn't it? When you think about how God is described here, how much we want the God of thunder to, to deal with us when we walk out of the way. We want the God who rains down lightning from heaven when we sin. We want to pay for it, don't we? In some respect. We, we, sometimes our instincts are far more Catholic than I think we realize. The idea of penance works, and God just waves our right to that. My son died for that. And know that that's even anticipated here. That God didn't change his program of forgiving his people or showing grace to his people when Jesus came. This has always been his character. Jesus is the pinnacle of that expression, not a new tact. But this is not how we natively think of God, nor, if we're honest, how we tend to portray God to others. How often do we preach the angry God, the demanding God, the unsatisfiable God, the shaking finger of God's condemnation at your sinfulness? That's not the God that's on display here. He's he's different in every dimension that we can imagine. And to, if we're honest, we couldn't live any other way. It's necessary that for us that he is like this. Otherwise, we have no hope. But that is how he views us. Is it First John, where we find that if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart? I think captures a, a bit of that tension here. We want... We, want, we, we represent the angry God to our own hearts, and God says, that's not me. You do not represent me in this case. I forgave abundantly. I love abundantly. I desire to show mercy. But that's his promise. That's his promise to us. In fact, you can recognize, you can recognize in here the echo of... well. Or maybe Paul actually echoing this in the passage on love in 1 Corinthians 13. Does not keep a record of wrong. Hopes all, bears all, forgives all. That's, I think, in part what Paul has in mind there. So that's the first promise. Second promise is the promise of God's steadfast love. And it's, 
These next two are, it's interesting to ask, why does the psalmist use this kind of language? Because it's a language that, that just cuts through any possible ability to comprehend what is being said here. It is very visual in its language. As far as the heavens are above the earth, a child could look at this and understand. As far as the heavens are above the earth, uh, you hear for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards us who fear him. The magnitude of his love is not just a passing fancy. It's not a simple toleration. There's no hedging on this. There's no restraint on this. This is an overwhelming, overwhelming motive and intent of God towards us that is immeasurable. It meant we can't conceive of how great God loves us. And it, it's, it's funny because I think, I think for us as Reformed folks, for us as good Presbyterians, we, we have a little rearguard action against some of the theology of the revival era where you preach the love of God to anyone without, without any sort of qualifications as though anybody can simply receive the love of God. And we want to we be theologically accurate at that point. But maybe in the process we rein in our own understanding of God's love towards his people. It's without measure. He's not, the psalmist is not daring you to take out a tape measure and to figure out how far the heavens are from the earth. It's without measure. It's without bound. It's overwhelming in a way that is, I, mean, I think, terrifying. Because what do you do with that? What do you do with a, a God, a holy God who loves you like that? I mean, yes, we receive it, but contemplate that for a minute. Can you, can you take a break from loving us, God? Because I want to feel my own unworthiness. I, I want to rehearse again how I am sinful and you are holy and how you don't really need to do this, but you did. And there just seems to be a point, thinking of, of the prodigal son's father, there's a certain point where the son comes back with a speech prepared, which sounds a lot like a lot of the speeches that we give when we approach the Lord's table. I'm not worthy to come here. I'm not worthy to be your son. Just bring me on as a servant, and I'll be happy with that. And the father stops him from talking. You're home. You're my son. You're back with full accord. Everything. Robes, ring, feast, you, our position has not changed, such as God's love. Be, be interesting, kind of dramatically enact the rest of what we might imagine the son's response might be in that situation. I think it would be like ours, it would be slow to accept that. Because I still did this. It seems like there's this perpetual waving away of God, it's like, I'm done with what you've done. I'm done with your unworthiness. You're my son. You're my child. Shut up and eat. The kids are gone, so it's okay to say that word. But that's not how we function. And this is not just a love like warm feelings. This is, this is the, again, the steadfast love, this loyal love, this committed love. And I think, again... The challenge for us is to discern whether or not we understand this love on our terms rather than his terms. Because how loyal are we really? Well, not as far as the heavens are above the earth. 
Not even the space between the ground and how high I can jump at 53, which is not great. It's limited, isn't it? We're miserly with it. We're fickle with it. We're finicky with it. Maybe that's where we start from. We assume that God is like us because we want to be wise with our love. We don't want to get burned. We want to make sure they really appreciate what they're getting, and we assume that God views us the same way. And he doesn't. He defies that portrayal with something much better. Do you know that? Do you know how much God is committed to love you with a love that is way beyond what your physical body can handle? Second promise. Third promise. I love this one, and I think this is the hardest one. Well, maybe not. I, I make an argument for the fourth one. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove his trans, our transgressions from us. Again, another immeasurable amount. And in, there is no way to measure this. Um, you see similar ideas expressed differently in, in the prophets. Isaiah in thirty-eight seventeen says, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love... You have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Micah seven nineteen. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. This picture again and again in Scripture, this promise again and again in Scripture of his removal from us our sin. It's done. It's gone. I remember as a kid, we used, to, we used to wrestle with this because how can you forget sin? How can you forget something like that? Does God just kind of excise that part of his brain so that when you say to God, remember that time? God's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't remember. It didn't happen. That's, that's, not how we, that's not how we operate, for one, but that's also not how we understand that in our life. We understand I think we understand a, a proper biblical forgetfulness does not mean amnesia. It means something more powerful than that. But God no longer keeps score. They're forgotten. And that's incredibly hard to believe, isn't it? Think about today, actually dealing with young people and, you know, with kids of our own, and you're, you're trying to guide them in ways, in part, that they won't make decisions that they will live with the rest of their life. <laughs> and you say that from deep personal experience, right? The remembrance of sins. It, it made me think of, in the Lord of the Rings, Frodo is wounded by the knife of, of the Nazgul. And it's a pain that haunted him the rest of his life, on every anniversary of that event, and warm out. And this time it occurred to me, like, I understand, I understand at this point in my life better than any other life what Tolkien is saying there, which makes me wonder why Tolkien wrote that little thread in there. But that's true for us, isn't it? There are things that we've done 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, that as much as we want to, we can never forget. As much as it shames us, we can never 
escape. It haunts us. In the true sense of that word, it haunts us. And then never mind the fact how we deal with others when they sin against us. I'm going to remember that. I'm going to remember at the very least so I don't get hurt again. I'm going to remember that. I'm going to see you in a different light from here on. That must be how God deals with us. God's got to be tired of when I do the same thing over and over and over again, right? It's the same stupid stuff. We even hear it in our own prayers of confession, right? We get angry with ourselves. Here I am again, same stupid thing. Sorry, God. Here I am as a pastor. Here I am as a parent. Here I am as a, a, a husband or a wife. Here I am with the same stupid thing that I keep doing. I'm tired of myself. And God puts it behind his back. That's dealt with. It's hard to imagine living without that weight, which is maybe why we hold on to it. But his promise to us is that in his book, it's done. The record of sin and debt has been canceled on the cross. There's no more penalty to pay. There's no more shadow of a penalty to pay. It's gone in his reckoning. Do we believe that? I, I know Christians who identify themselves by the sins of their past. I know people who have been divorced or who feel like they carry this big D on them, that God sees them now as a divorced son or daughter of his, or whatever else it might be. That's not how God views us. He removes that. Dare say he rips that from us so that is no longer part of us. But we are truly forgiven. Truly forgiven. Truly free. And then the last one. The promise of God's understanding. As a father has compassion on his children, so God has compassion on us. Because he knows who we are. He knows we are dust. God's mercy to us is in part due to the fact that we are unbelievably and ridiculously and laughably frail. We don't live with the mentality of a flower. How's that for a line? We don't live believing that we are that small. We are afraid to think we are insignificant because then that means we don't matter. But that's not the way to understand it. We do matter because of who we are as God's creation, as the object of God's redemption. But we are small. We are weak. Our knowledge, our ability to understand anything of the seen universe, let alone the things of God, is incredibly limited. And then our lives are incredibly short. We look at someone who dies at 96 and are amazed. My grandmother died last year at 104. It's hard to comprehend. And it's nothing. It's a vapor. It's so short. It's so small. It's of so little account in the big scheme of things. But, but here's the thing. And, and, well, I say two things. 
One, I think in our own hearts, we struggle to accept that fact. We want to be big. We want to mean something. We want to be permanent ourselves. That's why it's scary to face our own mortality. That's why middle-age, you know, midlife crisis is a thing. Because we want our lives to mean something. We want to make our stamp in the world. We Christianize it by calling ourselves world changers or Joshua generation or all sorts of other marketing stuff. Because, yes, we want to do good in the world, but more importantly, we want our lives to matter. And so we just are on this program to establish our presence in the world, even though we're, you know, to us it would be like a flea squeaking on the ground. And it's hard for us to accept that God has compassion on us as we are. Back to that, we want to in some way kind of deserve that. Consider how hard it is to acknowledge to God that you are dust. When you sin, how do you pray? I'm better than this, God. I'm ashamed of this, but I'm better than this. I should have had more self-control. I should have avoided that. I should have been stronger. I should have been wiser. I should have been more mature. What are we saying? We're not professing our weakness. We're, We're professing our frustration that we weren't better than we are. And God sees us as we are. And in fact, it says, accept that. I understand who you are. That's why, I, that's why he deals with us the way that he does. Which is, it's terrifying because it strips everything away. Whatever you've made of this life, whatever your ambitions are to make of your life, he strips all that away and deals with us according to who we are, not who we wish we were. Right, parents? <laughs> I mean, which means that as much as we feel frustration and anger and shame at who we are, God knows us as we really are and has compassion. He knows what you are not and meets us. That's what, and it's hard to get. I mean, I've, I've seen it growing up. I saw it for years and how, again, we approached the Lord's table. The, the overriding question that was meant to occupy our hearts as we came to the table is, am I worthy to receive this or not? What's the answer? No, never were. What about what I did yesterday? Did God not know? What about what I'm thinking now? What about the desires of my heart? The, the first line of the remembrance of the Lord's Supper should clue us in. On the night he was betrayed, he did this. By whom? His disciples. Who around that table was worthy of that supper? Not a single one. What we would want is for God to clear the room and get better disciples that moment. But he gives it to people like us. And it doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean this sort of sad sack, well, I'm a lame person, I'm a lame parent, I'm a lame father, and, and all that stuff, and we just kind of mope in our lameness. But, but it's, again, to focus our attention on, but God loves us. We can be a child in God's presence 
and not an adult. We can't, we don't need to. <laughs> it's such good news. It's such good news. It's that healing promise that we need. At those points where we, I would imagine all of us know well our failures. He knows and he loves. He has compassion. And he keeps you on the team in spite of that. Hmm. So what do we do with this? Four things I want to say in closing. First, I hope you believe this. And I, I want to put the emphasis on believe. I want to move aside from the, the very superficial way we talk about believe, which I think more often than not is sort of a passing way of acknowledging that we affirm its truthfulness. But to let this take root when you are discouraged, when you are dismayed, when you are ashamed, that this is where you come and you hear God's promise to you. As far as the heavens are from the earth, so is my steadfast love towards you. But what about this? Repeat. As far as the heavens are above the earth, this is how I love you. As far as the east is from the west, this is how I've forgiven you. It's done. It's accomplished. It's finished. And that's not meant to just shame us and to keep wrestling with this. It's to assure us and affirm us and root us. And over time, it'll start to take root. Over time, the anxieties and the fears and the doubts and the shame, the regret will ease. Not because you've got a new technique to mind trick yourself into being at peace, but because you're starting to see God more in his fullness. It's pretty amazing when you start to think about that, the failure to grasp this tends to us towards looking into the depths of our own heart and just being dismayed by what we find there. We're here to worship God, for goodness sake. Remember him? <laughs> One who promises? That's what he's doing. Look to me. Look to me. But I look to me. What about look to me? I'm more than enough. So I, hope, I hope you believe that. Second, I hope that's a part of our worship. Whatever else we are doing in worship, whether it's the, the tidiness of our, of our service order, the profundity of our songs, what's the amount that's in the offering baskets, the, the relationships that we are all enjoying or not enjoying the moment with each other as God's people, whatever, the center point must be God. That's what... In the church, it's easy to get discouraged with the church. I think where we tend to get discouraged with the church is when we start to take our eyes off God first. And we start looking at the muddle here, and if God could only see what our particular congregation is like, what would he think of us right here? I love you. I forgive you. I'm committed to you. You're my people. Worship me, not your failures. Worship me, not your brokenness. But this should be central to our worship, encouraging each other, constantly reminding each other of who he is and what he's promised. Third, this should be part of our proclamation to the world. The world desperately desires a God who is permanent, don't they? Look at how people are upended by all sorts of uncertainty and impermanence in this life. 
We, we've got the promises of God, not just the person of God, but the promises of God to proclaim to people, to show them this is what he's like. Because they don't know how to think about God apart from his word. Well, here's a great place to start. This is what he's like. This is what he gives to his people. This is what you lack apart from him. A place to, to stand, a place to, to weather the chaos of our impermanent lives. And then lastly, and, and this, this goes without saying, but it's sort of a, a little cheap shot that pastors like to use at the end of sermons. Let's not forget how God deals with us is how we should deal with each other. Let us love each other steadfastly like this. Let us forgive. Let us learn to forgive like this. Is there a need for compassion today amongst God's people? Is there a need for us to remember that we're just people? That we are weak? That we make mistakes? Obviously, pastors don't labor under that burden, but the rest of you. (laughs) Pastors need to be reminded of that too. And you need to be reminded of that of pastors. As God has dealt with us, there is an implicit expectation that we treat each other the same way. That's how we learn the lesson. That's the transformation that God means for his word to have in our life. We don't just understand it by getting it here. We we understand it by how it breathes out of our lives from there on. And so my hope is that as we root ourselves, that we, we, on the one hand, do get more rooted and established in the promises of God. I think that's vital to us in any age, let alone our own age, but also that that's what flows out of lives that are rooted in these promises as well, come what may. Let's pray. Lord, again, we we stand amazed at who you are and what you've given us. We, We do not have the vocabulary. I do not have the vocabulary to express the semblance of a, a small understanding of what we just read here. Lord, teach us. Show us. Remind us. Help us. Give us the ability to see. Give us the heart to, to comprehend. Help us to grasp this so that we, we stand in this more and more firmly, that we root ourselves in the promises, that we understand all that we've been given for, li- been given for life and godliness are in places like here. And that, that we, would, we would trust you in the face of whatever uncertainty we might come upon. But also that that would, that would be the aroma of our lives around others. Your people as well as the people of this world. That, that, that they would see the effect of, of Christian faith on a life of a person who's caught up by it. So Lord, help us. You know that we are dust and we rejoice in that. We, we need to know that. What a comfort that is. And Lord, we, we pray now that you would enlarge our hearts, enlarge our minds, enlarge our lives to, to take that in and to, to really grow in these truths. We pray all this, Lord, in the name of your Son. Amen.